welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and I'm delighted to be joined, as always, by my compadre, Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. It's uh, really good to uh, talk to you. Yeah, just thinking about what we were going to talk about today in this uh, bravely horrible new world. How are you feeling about everything? Strange, strange. I mean, it's strange because so much has changed and so much hasn't changed. Like, how we do this hasn't changed at all. But there's that cloud of difference that hangs over everything now. Um, life is strange. Working from home, teaching online. I do a lot of online teaching anyway, so that shift was was fine. But it's the, the days are so different now. Shared with my wife, who also works, and the childcare, and just feeling a different... Yeah, a different sense of everything is, is utterly strange. And also living in Cornwall, where my day-to-day life in the village is markedly unchanged. You know, <laughs> like there's hardly anyone around anyway. Yeah. Um, and the walks with the dog are the same. So there's a real there's a real weirdness, isn't there, in the air? Um, I can't imagine what it's like in London for you. Yeah, it's it's really odd to be honest with you. I mean, you know, just with the work thing, I'm I'm in a in a particularly privileged position, I think, um, compared to some people. When you you think about the the part time lecturers, I mean, that we've got somebody that I work with who is part time, and her husband is part time, and they're renting, and they've got two kids, and she's kind of really worried, you know what I mean? Because that work yeah. has dried up, yeah. and it's like, what are, what are we going to do? You know what I mean? And I'm like, I just don't know. I, I, I was lost for words. I didn't know what to say because yeah. my position is a lot more privileged and there's a lot really that's kind of unchanged apart from observing all of the rules and regulations that are now in place. But, you know, I I don't have any children and both me and my girlfriend have, you know, jobs where the money is still coming in. We can do them from home. So it's, it's an oddly... Um, it's an odd time in terms of, yeah, the impact that it's having on us, but I have to always sort of remind myself that in the grand scheme of things, the impact on me is not is not that great. And it, interestingly, it's, it's sort of begun to, in the last week or so, it's really begun to um, influence my thinking about what the future holds again. You know, I've been sort of going through a little bit of this in the whole season, really, but what education is going to look like at the end of this the impact on on the film industry as a whole, but kind of like the way that we watch films and the way that we talk about films may change. And yeah, just interestingly how creativity and what we do on the podcast and in, in other areas of our lives is going to be impacted, maybe not even wholly negatively. I think there are, there are sort of interesting possibilities that may come out of this with the caveat that this is a horrible thing that nobody wants to happen, you know what I mean? I don't want to. I don't want to make yeah. it sound like that. Well, I think yeah. I mean, it, it's exposed the kind of the horrors of just-in-time capitalism and the fact that the majority of the planet, even in the so-called civilized West, um, is precarious. Yeah, and it's it's really it's terrifying, you know. And yes, we are in a privileged position, but with such an unknown future that could change at any minute. Absolutely. Our our university is going to be open in September. Um, And what does that mean when you haven't got new students coming in? You know, like everyone's at risk with these systems the way they are. But I think it is also important to, to think positive ways out of it because the system kind of has to change. I wonder how you walk back some of the stuff that the conservative government have put in place and how do you then take that stuff away later down the line 
because it's not going to change in terms of stability for a few years after this. Um, that's interesting. And also, as bad as it is, yeah, I think that what what's the alternative, as we all say, is the alternative just kind of just given up? Or is it kind of thinking of new ways of doing things and and kind of trying to embrace the positive where it can be found, even in times like this when it's very difficult to do that? Um, and yeah, we're privileged to be able to do that, but it doesn't it doesn't change the, the fear and anxiety that's kind of just everywhere. Um, yeah. But I do think that it is, you know, I have I have definitely changing the way I think about things. And I've had a very difficult year at work, a very bad year, um, lots of kind of things at home and, and personal that have, that have been very, very difficult. And this has just sort of come at a time where it's forced me to to stop, you know, and, and not, not be kind of automatically doing the things I was doing every day, which were really harmful to my mental and emotional health. And now I'm, you know, spending most of my days thinking and I'm off social media and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange time to, which is loaded with guilt of being able to do that when so many people can't, so many people are just literally wondering how they're going to get fed. Um, yeah. And that's, that's terrifying. How, how has been being off social media? Cause I've, interestingly enough, actually I've slagging social media off is one of my favorite pastimes a lot of the time, but actually I think it has helped a little bit and I've, kind of cultivated my Twitter feed and my use of it in in a way where I don't seem to see a, a, a lot of bile. I mean, I know obviously so many people are, are tweeting about coronavirus, but you know, you get, I've got to the point where I can let that go and still pull out the the interesting stuff. But I know that you've you've taken a particularly, you know, um not radical isn't the right word, but you know, a sort of cold turkey approach in in recent weeks. How's that been for you? It's been great. I have to be honest. I think <laughs> um because I because because it's me and it's I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like yeah. I know I know how best I deal with things, and it generally is a kind of rip the bandaid off and just do it, you know. That and I've tried stepping back, and I've tried, and it just I just can't do it with any area of my life. I need a kind of hard reset. But what it's also made me realise is that you know, and sort of people talking about what's happening on social media in a positive sense, you realise, yeah, that it it's not an inherently bad thing. Um, I just got to the point where I, I wasn't I wasn't finding any value in it and it was damaging to go on there, even in small doses, and I just needed to step away. Mm. And I wonder how that will play out. But I know for the foreseeable I can't I can't do it. And it's been really refreshing to not think about what's going on, on there, you know, and just just concentrate on what's in front of my face every day. But I think it's I hope as well, one of the things that come out of it is that there's a return to what the positive aspects of social media could be, which is that it's social and it is a, a connecting force, you know, and it does make people feel less isolated and it does make people feel like they're part of a, a larger cultural society. Like that's, that is absolutely vital, um, particularly in with the technological changes in the way the world works. I think it's, it's nonsense, but, but I also think, well, actually I'm kind of at a stage in my life where I could go, I know enough people and I'm talking to enough people and I'm doing enough things and, that I can take a break. And again, it's privilege. I don't need it, you know. Mm. And what I need is to is to think differently for a while. And you know, it's incredibly privileged to be able to just say no. I'm not. I'm not going to be on there, you know. And and know that that's that nothing's going to change for me. And it's and it does help having a a family at home. Yeah. To kind of occupy occupy my days, particularly with a three year old at home all the time. Um, it's 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 a completely different experience and what i am enjoying you know and i'm enjoying the work of 
of what does a life look like where I'm not thinking not about worried work about that yeah and I'm not thinking about social media and those big things that we're not necess- I didn't always feel that they were taking up much space but now I realize they were yeah and it's like oh okay something has to change yeah no I think I think I'm going to be a lot more off it next week um, and I'm going to try and refocus into sort of areas of of creativity and just relaxation that that don't involve being on there and worrying about it because I think there is that sense that you know that the, the Twitter sphere is not the real world and and getting away from that is is something that I think more and more people are doing from what I can see in just yeah. in terms of a uh, using this period of time as a kind of a, you know switching point. Um, having also, s- I think just to, just to, just to add, but I, I do think there's a difference in terms of where you live. You yeah, know, like I live in a in a pretty social place in the sense of if I walk the dog every day. And I see ten people. I say hello to that ten, ten people and wave to them. And you know, most of the people I know just from walking around the village. There's a, my days are so. But if you live in London, mm. it's although you're surrounded by people, it's not a social sort of social atmosphere, is it? So no. being in and not seeing, not being able to go out and not seeing people, makes you strive for a connection that you would have at work or you would have with the people that you know. Like it's it's only natural, I think, to 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 want. And that's what that's what's amazing about that that form of social media where you know that there's people there that will you can have a conversation with and it's 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 really important and i and again i'm privileged that i don't i don't need that because i you know Mm. i've got i've got people i walk the you know see when i walk the dog which is very strange okay having said all that though we had some really good news um, which spread out over social media over the weekend. And that was a, a really nice endorsement from uh, Mark Kermode in The Observer. So, yeah, I mean, th- this was just a, a sort of a listicle in a, in a way, wasn't it, where they'd interviewed critics or got critics to contribute to what they felt were their experts' experts. So where do the critics go to get their cultural information and their cultural markers? And it was really nice of him to... To give us a name check in his, uh, I think it was the section was and, and the the extra resource or something like that, wasn't it? You know, because it was no, like your favorite. Another fav- gem, he called yeah, it. another gem. So that's yeah. uh, that was really nice. Yeah, it was lovely to, and again, like it was. I mean, I, I had the print copy, so it was nice to just sort of open it up, and then I got a couple of messages from people saying, "Oh, you're in the, mm. you know, you're in the Observer this week," and it was just, yeah, it was a, a really gratifying thing and really nice to know that you know what we're doing is is kind of still on mark's radar and obviously he was he was a, a great contributor to the last episode yeah um yeah i think it, it was it was just really it was really nice and again kind of makes you feel yeah we are we are doing what we do and also what was really nice was that what he said about us online and in the paper version was was kind of what we want to get across yeah you know like it feels like that what we're doing is being seen um uh, for what we want it to be, which I think is really rewarding, and uh, that'll probably come up a lot in the the conversation we have later on today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the episode is based around an interview that I did with um, Blake Howard, who is the host of All the Presidents Minutes podcast and kind of like the executive producer of One Heat Minute Productions. So this is a, a sort of podcast network that have, have done. Uh, various um, titles of podcasts, but they're all in this vein of doing deep dives where they they get 
their contributors to comment on one minute of a particular film. And obviously Heat was the first one that they did. And now they, they have a, um, a partner who is doing Increment Vice, which is obviously a, on one of your favorite films, Neil. And Blake yeah. himself is doing all the President's Minutes. So that, that's to come in a, in a second. But first of all, I think, Neil, you wanted to um, talk about um, a few films that you've reviewed for their uh, DVD releases. Yeah, so uh, thanks to Eureka uh, Masters of Cinema for sending over a whole heap of stuff, um, which most of which I saw before lockdown. So um, kind of probably maybe should have held off when I needed some stuff to watch, but uh, I did kind of uh, get most of them in before before that kind of sitting at home wondering what to watch kind of kicked in. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, a real range of stuff that they've released recently, and uh, they've got five films over three releases, uh, which which they sent me, which was a kind of three film. Buster Keaton set from his time with MGM, uh, Sidney Lumet's Long Day's Journey and Tonight, and uh, William Deterle's Syncopation. So, yeah, a kind of real mixed bag. And, it, yeah, I have to be honest with you, like kind of watching watching Syncopation, I really struggled with why they'd release that film. <laughs> Sometimes they send the notes, um, like the sleeve notes and the liner notes, like, they, like the BFI send it with with theirs and sometimes I get them from Masters of Cinema where you can read like the restoration project and the reasoning behind the re-release and the Scandal one from the BFI which is obviously like Harvey Weinstein's Miramax is one of their first releases yeah and in the notes you know when you see when I watched that Miramax logo come up I was like oh this is weird but the notes kind of unpack that and say yeah this is you know and kind of reflect on it very very critically and Syncopation is a film that, for me, I found really difficult to watch. I found it really kind of racist in its kind of whitewashing of, of jazz history. It's about white jazz musicians essentially put upon and struggling to get recognised and getting the music recognised. But at every point, they're happy to just kind of steal and ignore the work of uh, the black musicians in New Orleans who develop jazz. Um, and it's it's really problematic and the way they talk about all oh, that New Orleans music as if as if it's you know lesser than than what they're doing is is really fascinating the amount of white musicians in it in this kind of symphony of jazz which is this huge classical concert where they're trying to legitimize jazz music a lot of it's based on kind of historical historical fact but also really ignorant of the real facts which is you know the people who actually invented the music and and developed it and how that was kind of stripped away from them and i just it was really it was a really difficult watch despite it being a really technically great movie who's the filmmaker uh, again neil William Deterle, kind of just jobbing uh, okay. Hollywood studio filmmaker. And the, and the year of, is, sorry. Uh, oh, it's, um, now you're asking me. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> come back to that, it's okay. Come back to that. I'm just trying to get a sense if it's a sort of more historical piece or it's it's fairly contemporary. It's No, it's sort of like, I think it's like the early 50s maybe. Oh, okay, right, gotcha. And uh, it's got a young Jackie Cooper uh, from Superman. Oh, wow, uh, okay. Actually, 1942, actually. Oh, right, okay, fairly early uh, then. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, kind of looking back at the kind of the twenty, the, the sort of the tendencies that around. So, there's a big section in World War One where a lot of the musicians go off, and that's when black musicians apparently are given the chance to uh, actually step into that space because all the white musicians are off fighting uh. Uh, in World War One, and it's just the telling of it, you know. And I think it's definitely I'm watching it with a 2020 head. Yeah, but it, it's hard, you know, when you when you know what you know to not to not yeah. do it in that way. But the music's amazing. And and Jackie Cooper is this kind of young, brash um, jazz musician who wants to keep the music pure and um, right. is, 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 is he's really, really great in it. Just so a kind of fascinating 
period piece, but I, I definitely think one that needs to be watched with a kind of context in mind. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, with those, all the films that we talked about in that tension between ideology and aesthetics. And it's like sometimes you, obviously you have to go back to certain films and understand the context in which they're being yeah. made. I mean, it's really funny. I was watching, just last night, I was watching Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead because I'm having a bit of an Andy Garcia trip at the moment. Nice. But oh my God, the the sort of homophobia in that is just unbelievable. And this is not, you know, not that long ago. I think it was sort of early 90s. And yeah, it's in that kind of post-Tarantino wave, isn't it? Yeah, that? that's yeah. it. And and it's sort of really weirdly wears that on its sleeve, you know, in a very uncritical way in the in the film itself. Like nobody's really sort of brushing that off. Even Andy Garcia as the character who's wake, working with, with gay characters is still sort of homophobic himself. And it's, yeah. you're like, wow, this is, it's almost as if you can't, you can't forgive it because it is so recent. But even then, it sounds like with this film that's so long ago, even then you were finding it hard to forgive it for its its context, as it were. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, what what do you do with that work that you 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 can't help but but see it through those those eyes, you know? Like, yeah. it's, I mean, it's technically great syncopation. And, uh, and as soon as you said about things to do in Denver, because I remember really enjoying that film when it came out, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, I just, I just think it's, I could see it and I enjoyed it as a technical film because I was like, yeah, this is obviously made in 1942, but so much of the, it's just so much of the treatment of black music and black musicians is, you know, has historically, been, and I just think that's the weight of the history. And in 1942, you know, the the cost of kind of stealing and reappropriating the work of black musicians in blues and jazz was the impact was not known it was just you know kind of living under the assumption of the meritocracy of like we're great musicians and yeah. we can take this music and you know there was there i don't think there was even thought about necessarily as 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 theft as it would obviously later come to be seen over the course of 50 60 years of every musical form coming from you know the the labor of of unpaid black musicians uh, or low paid black musicians and it's it's just yeah i just found it hard and I, and i think again that's because of i guess knowledge you know and it's not just the knowledge of the history but the music as well you know so it was tough to it was tough to watch in that sense but what was interesting was then watching the buster keaton films and buster keaton is obviously lauded and celebrated and rightly so but even in those films there's there's things that are so of their time but they're quite difficult you know they're quite difficult to watch. There's a bit of blackface in one of them, and in the Navigator, which is an amazing film. The last sequence is, uh, you know, sort of Buster Keaton and the love of his life on this, you know, drifting on this boat that winds up off the coast of a cannibal island, and the depiction of the cannibals is massively racist. Mm. You know, because how have you seen a cannibal? Um, depiction that wasn't, um, <laughs> yes, you know, and uh, but. That you, I don't know. It was easier to forgive that, and I don't know why that was. Um, maybe because it's not sort of rooted in the whole film, and there's so much of it which is part of the the set piece of it. And uh, yeah, it, that was. But it was still strange to just be kind of jolted and being like, "Oh, this is this feels uncomfortable now." But in that, you know, the, the particularly the pace of Keaton's work in that finale is so so quick and so mesmerizing on a kind of technical level. It you quickly just get absorbed by what how he's doing what he's doing and, and, and how it's all put together. So there was definitely a technical element to that that was, was kind of fascinating. Great. And and a did you have a final one? Yeah, so just um, I will say about the Buster Keatons that the MG they are an MGM block. So that we are going to talk about the 
the Great Buster, which is the Peter Bogdanovich documentary, when it's released, uh, we were going to do that, but it's been put back. So this is these are three films from his MGM period, which, like the Marx Brothers period, MGM are not the best work, and there's so much interference from the studio. So they're not necessarily at the same level as The General or Steamboat Bill Jr., but within them there is just so much to admire, um, and The Navigator particularly is, a, is an astonishingly good piece of work. And then Long Day's Journey Into Night is... You know, not necessarily lesser Lumet, but certainly not top tier. And it's it's a bit stagey. It really struggles to kind of get off the stage. It feels blocked mm. in terms of the way the actors move. The movement feels very stagey. But the performances are amazing. And right at the right at the death, if you sort of make it two and a half hours through <laughs> to the kind of finale, um, it suddenly comes alive cinematically, and you suddenly see what a what a um, a cinematic adaptation of Long Day's Journey and Tonight could look like. And it's interesting because it's quite early in Lamette's career and you start to see him breaking free of the, the kind of staginess um, and yeah. would kind of the fluidity that was, would inform his later work is is there. And yeah, just great to see kind of Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn and Jason Robards go at it for 45 minutes yeah. non-stop. So, yeah, yeah I, saw, I saw that in, in London with um, Leslie Manville and um, Jeremy Irons. And it was just devastatingly good. I mean, you know, it, it, it is a it's a three hour sort of family drama where people are just going at each other, aren't they, for the the, the entirety? So it's it's absolutely exhausting. But but yeah, an, a, an absolute classic play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for those reviews, Neil. That was uh, great to catch up with with them. Um, so let's get into the the main meat of the podcast, which is me talking to the podcaster Blake Howard. Um, of all the president's minutes, this is coinciding with an appearance that I made on his show, which is is out already, which you'll be able to listen to. But this episode, we kind of focus on on podcasting and film podcasting as a kind of process and a form. We talk a little bit about how he came to make the podcasts that he did and where film podcasting might be going in the future. And it was recorded before all of this kind of took off, so maybe some of the things that we're saying could have incorporated the the context a little bit more if we'd have done them at the time but but clearly it was uh, we're into a into a new world right now but hopefully you'll still in, enjoy it there's uh, lots to think about here and uh, lots to take i think from blake's comments so uh, let's listen to that now Well, it's amazing to welcome Blake Howard onto the Cinematologist podcast. Blake, thanks so much for taking the time out. Thanks, Dario. Thanks so much for for inviting me to be a part of the show. Um, uh, I'm always appreciative in this massive ecosystem of like 700,000 podcasts in the world. And I think like 50 to 60% of those are on movies that um, anything can resonate. Yeah. So I'm really happy to be a part of the show. No, it's great because, um, you know, it's, I think, as you know, we, we are interested in in films, obviously, but then film podcasts and then podcasts kind of more broadly, particularly with my work in, in my sort of research work. So I think one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, and we'll we'll discuss this as we go along, of course, is the, the format of your show and how it came into being, particularly because obviously it's a very idiosyncratic show. Yes. Um, and and one that you know it's it's going to be really interesting to, I think to talk about audiences and and what kind of audience you think listen and and you know where you sit in a film criticism fandom cinephilia kind of nexus. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm just as interested in someone with your expertise giving <laughs> giving giving me some insights because 
you know, if I was to be brutally honest, when the project started, it was as selfish as like a run, like, you know, like a, a, a lone run early in the morning. I've been in and around boxing. I haven't really talked about this. It's so funny that it's sort of come up now. I've been in and around boxing all my life. Uh, I've got a, an uncle who's a, a very significant Australian boxer. Okay. And, uh, and uh, we don't need to go into that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but all I'll say is uh, around boxing, you learn about the thankless task of road work. And the thankless task of road work for people who haven't heard that expression before is, you know, in very classical boxing training, guys get up in the morning and it's usually before dawn and they run usually around eight to nine Ks is the sort of yeah. baseline. And that is their thankless me time kickstarting the day before anyone else is awake. And that is not even really the beginning of any sparring training, conditioning, anything like that. It is just there. This is my routine. And so when I first pursued one heat minute, I ha of course would have loved to think that as many people out there in the world. And I think, there kind of are that I've in my wildest dreams beyond my imagining that love this movie and have engaged with the show in any way. Um, but at the time it was like so essential to me. It was like, I needed to do it. Yeah. So it became like, if I don't do this, I'm not doing my, my work. It reminds me a little bit of the, the film when we were Kings we're talking about Muhammad Ali. Cause um, yes. I think there was a moment in there when his uh, trainer, Angelo Dundee was talking about getting up at six in the morning and it, and he, he referred to it as putting gas in the tank. So it's kind of like gas in the tank for, for everything really. One of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. When we were great, Kings. But yeah, exactly. Exactly that reason, right? Gas in the tank. You're just putting it down. And it's, it's really interesting. And the, um, obviously we just, we, we just sort of mentioned previously about, being international, obviously that you're there in Australia, we're here in the, in the UK, but you have guests from America and it's a sort of, you know, your, your process is kind of globalized transnationally. And we try to do that as much as we can as well. I mean, I was just, just as a starting point, do you think that that has an effect on the conversation? So say for example, if you've got somebody in the room and then you've got somebody like we are today via Skype, does that have a, a, a sort of impact do you think on the way the conversation goes and do you mitigate for that? Uh, that's a really great question. Yes and no. So of course, when you're in front of someone, there's a different energy. And usually what it is, is a shorthand to candor. Like oh, that's what I find it like cuts through to that comfortability. Like right now, as we're talking, you know, I'm probably at your place. You're in my, my garage turned podcasting studio at home. And when they're here, like people come into my house and there's my dog and there's my lovely wife and my two kids. And then there's all of my nerdy film geek paraphernalia behind me. And so I just think it's part of just getting to know you and having a little bit of intimacy. That's like where the gap is completely closed face to face. Yeah. And so what, what happened in some of my conversations is the shortcut to uh, the conversational candor became people just knowing that maybe I was one of their people. Yeah. And so when, and, and, and to explain that, because it's a bit strange to sort of just say that in, in, in the way that I said it is someone the other day was tweeting and mentioning Rushmore. And there's a scene in Rushmore, Wes Anderson's film, where Jason Schwartzman's character goes up to buy explosives. And he says to a, a character at a demolition store, and uh, he says, charge this to Tat's Demolition Tucson. <laughs> now, that is a dog whistle. Yeah. So for 90% of the people who are listening to this podcast right now, they just go, okay, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tat's Demolition Tucson. It's probably a movie reference. Well, it is a movie reference, and it's a heat movie reference. And so what happens is, 
Wes Anderson is a huge fan of Heat and has said, you know, sort of facetiously sort of discussed that he has been trying to make Heat over and over. And so when people find out that I'm going to go down this journey and they have obsessed over the thing, so so many of the guests of the show have been huge Michael Mann fans or huge fans of Heat and revisited it countless times, I think that there's a distance. They just look at me and they go, this guy's insane. So, so, so this guy's insane enough to undertake this project um, it must be, it, it must, something must happen because I know that you probably have experienced it. You can't decide who's going to, who you're going to have electric chemistry. No, with. that's true. You know, you can't, you can't decide. And I've been really lucky that, you know, I remember Joe Lynch was an, uh, Joe Lynch is an American film director, um, and writer came on the show and like Joe and I were like, we'd known each other for a hundred years, like immediately. And so every podcast, I think, even when I was looking at Joe like Skype like this and sometimes his camera wasn't working. So we were just talking. It was like a phone conversation between old friends. So it just never, there was never that distance, but yeah, I, I, I think it's the process. I think it's the obsession. Yeah. And I think it's like, you've told them a secret about yourself, right? this weird thing. And now they're here and they know what it's about. Like we're not in here for a regular interview about movies or even a, you know, a contemporary film that they've had to have a take on and sort of craft what they're going to say or think about it, intellectualize it. They're talking about something that's, you know, at the time was, you know, 23 to 25 years old and obsessing over it with a weirdo who's been obsessing about it since 1995 with them. And I think maybe as well that with the broader ubiquity of podcasts, I think people go into a podcast interview with the expectation that this is not going to be a 10 minute press junket, you know? And I think sometimes when stars do go onto those shows, it really becomes even more awkward, you know, with a 10 minute press junket, you can get out of there. I mean, I remember listening to Mark Maron with, with, I think it was Sharon Stone. I thought, Oh, Sharon Stone's going to be really interesting. No, she wasn't (laughs) having it at all. You know? Because they're you are programmed though, right? Yeah. Like I feel you feel bad for those actors. That's like thirty years of junkets where you get eight minutes and ten minutes total because it's eight minutes for the interview and you know ten minutes for that stupid like attempt. Yeah, yeah, in and out attempted cordiality. And if you if you can strike a connection in those, I think you're really doing well. But yeah, like it's so interesting that some people are just like they get frightened of that. But also podcasting's weird. Because some people still give good podcasts. Like you would know what that's yeah, like, right? There's yeah. a give and a take. There's a conversation. There's a dialogue. There's people who let you go off on silly digressions and like, uh, you know, you go down there. And then there's others who kind of give you their answers and it's more of an examination and an interrogation to get to that real gold. So it's I, I, I just think it's like different muscles. Like, oh, okay, well, this is your style. Cool. We're going to have, we're going to play th- for this stuff. Yeah. I'm going to, yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that later on in terms of sort of the production of knowledge through conversation as it as it goes along and is yes. this a new form of of kind of reviewing but but first of all let's let's talk a little bit about your background i mean obviously you know i've been online and i've i've sort of had a look at, at your your website and obviously i've been listening to you, to the podcast but um you know were you, were you a sort of trained in journalism were you did you go to to college for that or uh, how did you sort of get into the into the film criticism business, as it were. Yeah, look, it's a weird one. Um, I started university just an arts degree, and I think that that probably makes the most sense if we're talking UK and Oz, because we're you know kind of have the same sort of tertiary education system. So I kicked off university. And I was just doing arts because I literally had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah, and uh, I, I I was doing English at that time because I'd always had a bit of an affinity for writing and communicating, and so it was just like, okay, well, this might help me build a pathway to communications or journalism or something. 
And what happened was years, like countless years of being a completely psychopathic film obsessive mm. <laughs> really meant that as soon as you cinema studies and especially film media and cultural studies, which is my eventual major, when that came across my pathway, like it opened doors to like, oh my God, you can actually have qualitative discourses on taste uh, from a university and intellectual perspective instead of, you know, actually using some of that. I don't know, that gas in the tank, as we were talking about before, for the the things that you love to talk about. And so I found my way into film media and cultural studies in like sort of the back end of my first year at university. And then I, I really was, you know, I tried to shoot the lights out with it. Um, so English became my second and film media and cultural studies became my major. And then right at the very end um, of my degree, I got an honours, like an honours in uh, um, film media and cultural studies. And I was really proud to do that. And I was thinking about uh, diving into a degree and I just didn't. I was like, oh, no, I, like, I felt like I'd given birth. And when I tell you what my thesis was called, my thesis was called What Makes a Man with Two Ends, which was a, a study on authorship and masculinity through the lens of Michael Mann's work. You know, the one huge chapter was on heat, another huge chapter was on the insider, and a third chapter was like a com combined chapter of uh, Ali, Collateral, and um, Miami Vice. Oh, my God. It's like, this is like, this is like, listening to myself in a sort of parallel dimension. <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute. Sorry, carry on, but I'll, I'll, this is crazy. And so I'd, I'd like said everything that I felt like I needed to say. It was a huge year of like completely immersing myself in all sorts of discourses of masculinity, every single thing you can imagine on cinematic authorship, like from Saris kicking it off to new Hollywood to just all those examinations of, you know, the political reflections and, and, and lots of theories about this like displaced authorship where you can see people's political motivations over a whole career. Anyway, I'd done a lot of research and so I was like, I'm done. And just by osmosis, like my brother worked for a DVD distribution warehouse when I was a kid. So that's how I was. My, he was my like my drug dealer for all sorts of movies. <laughs> and he just knew this guy, Dale Sinden, who's an Australian film critic and Australian radio producer for a long time on a big radio station in Sydney called 2UE. And I was so blessed because uh, I was talking to Dale about kicking off a website, just a blog, like with some friends um, that I'd been to university with. And Dale was looking for a new sort of offsider for a radio project that was going to go straight to podcasts for them. It was one of the first podcasts their, their, their network had ever done. And so I'd like dove in to through him headlong into it. And I was like a Padawan to a Jedi. Like he was the guy who taught me about breaks. He was the guy who taught me about like one topic here. And he was the guy who taught me to be succinct with, uh, you know, explaining those things. So I did that for like more than a year. I think we nearly got up to a hundred episodes, but it was like, like, a hundred weekly episodes learned how to like fire into breaks in case it needed to be syndicated right. and those things. And was that fairly early on in the, in, in podcasting as it was late to yeah. 2010s? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm talking 2000, 2009, maybe oh, right, like okay. very, very early. And so like, there was no, like there were long form podcasts, but for them it was like, no, we're going to record this. Like it can be syndicated. And then if you guys want to post it, there's going to be pretend breaks, you know, like, and we put little stings and things in there. And so it was very early. It was super early. And so I, I got my back door like learning from like a master of 10 minute reviews on radio and big things and then into an actual show. And it was, um, that, that was my real gateway in because I've, and then as I was lucky enough to, uh, grow into a new blog and things like that, I had sort of formed part of this Sydney film collective, this little community. And we just kicked off a publication together. Like there was a bunch of us, myself, Maria Lewis, who's now like a published author and, 
and uh, and a very talented writer in her own right, Cam Williams, who's uh, was one of the co-founders. You know, writes for the ABC, journalist Lawrence Barbo, who's an Australian award-winning critic. You know, there's we just had this litany of these great people who all of us started off like tinkering online together, and it just sort of grew into a whole bunch of other sort of independent writers. It was it was pretty pretty brilliant. Yeah, it's 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 just eerie listening to that because I went to university when I was 25 and did I did film studies, but then I got very much into the kind of uh, media studies, cultural studies kind of underpinning of of critical theory yes. and stuff. And I did my my undergraduate degree was in uh, conspiracy films, and it was oh my god, the, the we the, were reading all the same yeah, stuff. Exactly, it's crazy. So it's, <laughs> it's like um, you, you know, I, it was kind of around the the differences and similarities between the 70s cycle and the 90s cycle. Mm. And how sort of the technology had changed and all of, all of this kind of stuff. But then my MA um, dissertation was on masculinity in at the um, end oh, of the 20, 20th century. So I was doing Fight Club and American Psycho and, and it was just, yeah, an authorship. And it was just, so I'm just kind of like, oh my God. And it's amazing sort of um, the films that you've chosen. I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, I would assume that kind of if somebody was going to push you, you'd say Heat was your favorite film maybe of all time you know what i mean depending on what day 100%. it is yeah 100%. and then you know all the president's men is probably mine i would say so yeah your taste and your sort of background is synced up with uh, with mine yeah very strange it is strange and it's cool and it's it's just that it's that mammoth quote my friends and i talk about a lot which is you know we like we really like watching people who are really good at their jobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and I think that in, in two completely holistically different expressions, that's the through line. Mm. Obsessive people obsessively undertaking their work to the detriment of maybe the rest of their life. And to me, I mean, I was, I'll was mention this now, I was going to come back to that later, but that idea of being in an environment where you're with people who are good at their jobs and yes. they are... I mean, obsessive is obviously a strong word, but they are absolutely t- cued into being good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. That there's something kind of addictive about that, you know what I mean? And being in in that kind of environment, it's been a couple of times when I've worked in environments where there's been two or three people around me who are kind of like, you know, we're all on the kind of same page. And there is something amazing about being in that kind of environment. I literally look at the roster of One Heat Minute and that is the ethos. I'm talking about my favorite film, by my favorite filmmaker and the subjects of the film are these people who have crews of extremely capable people around them and every single fastidiously crafted element of those films are just you know operating at a higher level and so when i was gathering you know my crew it started off very local but internationally when i would just started gathering different people together I, I kept shooting the lights. I like going, who is the best person that I could imagine talking to this about? Yeah. And so that's where the roster of the one heat minute guests are. It's like the, the, the people who inspire me the most, some of the most like incredible critics and hilarious and insightful people of different crafts. You know, that's, I think that, I think that that's why it starts to, that's what actually makes good podcasts is like mm. incredible guests who push you and stretch you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. So it sounds like that the the transition from print to digital, you were kind of already within the sort of digital framework from the very start. And obviously you've got the pros and cons of freelancing and how difficult that is. I'm just wondering from sort of your perspective in Australia, what's it like working in that environment, trying to get work out there, trying to get work seen, trying to build an audience for the podcast in the sort of digital space? Look, I think with the podcast, so so let's let's talk freelancing first, and then I can dive into heat. the The freelancing landscape in Australia has such a small amount of good publications 
um, that, you know, and, and they're all very, there are some incredible writers, you know, for example, writing for the, like the magazine in Melbourne called Metro Film or occasionally, you know, the Guardian Australia will have it, the ABC. And there are certain publications that are just like tip top, top shelf when it comes to like culture. And even the Murdoch owned, the Australian has one of the best culture sections. You know, the culture writers for the Murdoch papers are phenomenal. Philippa Hawkins, et cetera. Gotcha. But it's so small. Like the window of like getting access is so small. And then there's this whole other like culture glut of people writing about pop culture in its most clickbait consumable forms. And so, you know, there's that. And I, I think the gap, the problem is it's like that thing, screen time, it's like screen time on your phone. Screen time tells you how long you like mindlessly scroll through Instagram, but you still fucking mindless. I'm sorry if, if, I, don't mean to, if I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. It's all right. No, no, you're allowed. It's fine. You still fucking mindlessly scroll through Instagram. And so yeah. the problem is that there is people out in, in the Australian market who deliver some unbelievably high quality writing and some of those folks get homes to write about it at the length that they want to write about it and others just don't get like don't get the profile don't get the hits and so in Oz it is a very it's a very hard environment to like cut through to be an, a dominant voice at, at some of those things from a writing perspective and then when it comes to podcasts look there is a really blooming and rich podcasting community in Oz and like true crime is insane. Like, you know, like, uh, the true, you know, the teacher's pet podcast, like was the number one podcast in the world for a little bit there. And like, that's a, that's an insane thing in and of itself. Aussies love true crime for some reason. Maybe it's cause we're a penal colony and they have that sort of there, but there, there's sort of the few and far between like really brilliant shoot the lights out podcast. So when I was doing one heat minute, like to be brutally honest with you, I never knew what an audience could or would be for it. I genuinely didn't. It actually wasn't about that. It's just really interesting because what, I, what I'm personally finding now doing a number of different podcasts is just like, it's so strange that the things that are the most, you think that there is no one out there for, but that, that, that you are just desperate to talk about ultimately become some of the most deeply satisfying. Like they, they become the most satisfying and they actually draw a crowd. Like, there's a really great podcaster in Oz. His name's Alexi Toliopoulos, and he's one of the hosts of a show called Total Reboot. And very recently, he and his partner did a uh, a show called Finding Drago about an author who wrote a, <laughs> a like a fan fiction novel novel about what happened to Ivan Drago after Rocky IV. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds and very podcasty. This, very, yeah, right. And it's like, and Alexi's wonderful, and the show is excellent. It's like a little investigative, like you know, sort of journalism thing, but for the most random of topics. And uh, like those come about, and they exist, and they're wonderful in the same landscape as the glut of other like, hey, we've got a movie show, and it's like every other movie show. You know, it's really, it's there. Are, there's such a lot out there that. You know, the one heat minutes of the world, I'm blessed and, and increment vice and all the president's minutes is like, and, and eventually Josie and the podcasts, you know, that they're for, they're for an audience that is out there that exists or doesn't, and they'll live and die by their sword. Yeah. We, we have the same attitude. I mean, sometimes you, you do fall into that trap of why are we not bigger than we are? And the re you know, it's, to me, it's quite simple, actually, that, that we're not, we're not star orientated and we're not comedy orientated. Yes. 
So I think those are the two. Th- and, it, and when you combine them, that's when you get oh. big numbers. Do you know what I mean? So if you've got a star and they're, you know, they're, they're essentially comedian. light and funny, that's fine. But when, when we're out and about and in the environments where, you know, whether they're academic environments or critical environments, then people come up all the time and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I listen to your show, I listen to your show. So, And you, you can't tell by, by the RSS feed anymore because people are streaming so much. So it's very hard to have a real sense of what an audience is, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite funny, right? And it's, um, I've been lucky to like meet filmmakers and things like that. The other day, an Aussie filmmaker, a really talented Aussie filmmaker, Lee Winnell, was like, oh, yeah, I've listened to One Heat Minute, I've listened to a few episodes, and I'm like, whoa. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it like freaked me out, you know? There, there are folks who've listened to the show and – it's sort of cut through um, and you kind of can't predict that. And you're so right about like a comic, but like, you know, there are comedians who are just built, like there are certain comedians that shows are great, but then there's others who are just like, they're phenomenal because the medium belongs to them. Yeah. You know, they, they, that's, you know, they, they, they're built for it. And so, yeah, you, it, the other day I felt so bad. Occasionally I feel bad for podcasts that exist that aren't mine. Like the other day, Zach Braff jokingly tweeted about doing a Scrubs rewatch podcast, like him actually being the host. And I thought of all those poor bastards like me with Heat. It would be like Al Pacino going, hey, guys, I'm going to do a Heat podcast. Yeah, be like, yeah, yeah. We're never listening to one Heat minute, like with some chump who lives in Australia. Where, like, it, the, the, When the star of the show wants to do a Scrubs rewatch podcast, you are kind of dead and buried. Like that's the star comedian TV like perfect nexus that's going to just shoot the lights out and and then it'll go away for a bit yeah it's a jump the shark moment isn't it that and it was almost (laughs) there's something about that though that the the lack of the distance the the irony would kind of collapse in on itself whereas somebody (laughs) from the outside comes in and does one heat minute or is obsessive about a show yeah you're kind of you're kind of able to go with that a little bit more maybe i don't know i don't know i have to figure that out in my brain why that works i know the the math doesn't quite work because you wonder (laughs) like like if it's seven seasons how many episodes really are they going to do like are they going to do one per season maybe (laughs) like if there's 24 episodes a season and seven seasons they're not they're not kicking through to that they're just not doing it that guy must have better things to do that's for sure. Um, <laughs> so the obvious question to ask is, you know, was there a sort of light bulb moment when you thought, I know what I'll do. I will record a podcast for one minute of my favorite <laughs> film, which is a quite a long film and, you know, have this a hundred and hundred and how, how many episodes is 166 minutes of the film. There currently is now 179 episodes of the show. Cause there was a couple of bonus episodes. Gotcha. Very recently, Xander Berkeley, the inimitable Ralph, uh, connected with me on Twitter randomly and I thought, well, he wasn't part of the show and that deserved its own very bonus episode. Yeah, look, the light bulb moment is this. I, I don't know about you, Dari, but like for me, there's a couple of, you know, trusted sort of confidants I have in my life and mates, very, very close mates. And uh, those two guys are Garth Franklin, who runs the incredibly enduring darkhorizons.com. It's been around one of the trailblazing movie news sites forever. And the other is Stu Coote, who's a really great friend who's got another podcast called Cinephiles and has been on One Heat Minute many, many times. Um, And all the President's uh, Minutes too. Um, Stu, Garth and I were shooting the shit uh, at the end of a Sydney Film Festival and I was actually pitching them. It's great because they were like my shark tank. I was like pitching them ideas of projects that I was going to undertake and the way that I kind of tell the story and it's probably the most apt for people listening, it's kind of like a Goodwill hunting moment where, you know, Robin Williams uh, was my friend Stu and I was Will and he was sort of like, 
the moment was like, it's not your fault. But rather than it's not your fault, it was, what do you want to do? And what happened was it sort of peeled away the layers of what I thought would be a good idea. Or I thought from a, you know, like a, a really sort of, I don't know, ruthless, like, oh, this would be good or maybe this would be valuable. Or, or, you know, there's sort of highfalutin ideas you have about a pursuit. But then what he stripped away in this sort of interrogation was like, what could I not live without? And my immediate reaction was, I just want to do a podcast where I talk about heat all fucking day. Like it was, that was the, that was the proclamation. And his biggest mistake and probably the best thing that he could have ever said to me in my life and the best creative thing anyone has ever said to me in my life was, I'd listen to that. And so then it was just a matter of how to make it happen. And as you know, it's a long film. So, you know, I, I'd known about Minute Podcasts before. The Star Wars Minute is the text, like it is the OG out there. And they've done every damn Star Wars movie you can imagine at this point. And, and so I thought, oh, I'll try it like that. And you just, you start with what the mechanism can be, which is, all right, I'll try and talk about a minute. How long do you think that will go? You have these conversations with friends. Oh, oh, maybe 15 minutes per minute. That seems like it'll be okay. And my friends are saying that so that they knew it wouldn't occupy my entire life. They're like, oh yeah, you could get this, knock this over in a year for they're only 15 minutes a minute. And then what happened was I did a proof of concept recording session with that I never thought I would release if it didn't work. And what happened was rather than 15 minutes an episode, it was like 15 minutes, then 20 minutes, then 35 minutes, then 40 minutes, then 50. And then it just grew. Basically, it was like I proved that this was something that was so essential to me and had so much legs and had so much of what I wanted to examine and talk about that I could do it. And so it becomes this thing. It's this weird thing that like when I tell people about it, it's hard to fully articulate like that the method to the madness doesn't make sense. It's like the method is the madness. Like that's what it is. It's when you do that, I, I realize what my best and most, the most valuable asset that I could be to our community and the most fulfilled that I could feel creatively was demonstrating the value of something artistic that I thought had overwhelming power in a glut of new content was to pluck out things that was so meaningful to me that it resonated on such a frequency for so long that I was, it was unbearable for me to not like scrutinize the living daylights out of it. And so, and I, so I think that as much as I like write features and columns and reviews, you know, like the other day when I recorded this bonus episode of one hit minute with Xander Berkeley and I kicked over the theme song on my deck, I just hit the button on our board and I hit it and I heard the theme song kick. I was like, Oh yeah, that, that old car that's in the garage now, that still starts, right? It's still nice. some, there's still got some fuel in there. And so you have that moment where it's like, you know, and, and, and that's why it sort of naturally led me to, mm. you know, one of my other favorite movie texts ever. This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides taking it. Give me all you got! This and Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me today for the 160th minute, we are, yes, six minutes away from the end credits of Michael Mann's 1995 crime, Opus Heat, is, well, a person with an extremely intimidating resume and a wonderful... Uh, just a, a wonderful talent for encapsulating feeling in his writing. Um, his, the film critic for Vanity Fair, a film critic for Vanity Fair rather, he's written in The Ringer, big fan, LA Review of Books, Reverse Shot. Crazily, I didn't know this about him because I've only been reading his film reviews and film writing is that he also writes crosswords for the new yorker and the new york times which is i'm sure there are some crossword geeks out there whose faces are going to melt more than anything we ever say about film or heat in this podcast but there's one thing that i have heard about him in the litany of wonderful guests someone said blake you simply must get this person on the show because they have a wonderful take about the chaste love of vincent Hanna and neil mccauley you might know him as K. Austin Collins, but I welcome Cameron Austin Collins to One Heat Minute. Cam, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you for inviting me. So here we are, 160th minute. Can I firstly ask, before we dive into minutes, before we dive into your, um, your take on heat and beyond, is that true? Do you have a take that I have not been able to find scouring through your writing about these two gents? <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure I've tweeted about this, but I, I won't. I won't say that i'm the origin of of this take but if if what the person who recommended this meant (laughs) was that i i think that heat is a romance that's absolutely something that i that is absolutely something that i believe (laughs) that's part of what i respond to when i watch the movie i think it's part of what a lot of men in particular (laughs) straight gay doesn't matter sort of see in this movie is that it's it's a it's a romance in a way um not not in like the not necessarily in the you know, boy gets girl, et cetera, way, but in the in the tie that these two men have between each other, I absolutely think that there's something really profound about about what's going on between these two guys. There's so much in that that that's interesting to pull pull out of it. But the, I think one of the things to think about is the way in which what you're doing is the total opposite of what internet culture is like. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It's like the, the the opposite of what you're doing is is the the hot take tweet yes. that you you give straight after you've come out and seen seen a film. Yes. And I think what's what's interesting about podcasting is the way that that the medium has enabled creators and listeners to go into these deep dives and mm-hmm. and you know if you asked anybody before podcasting kind of became the thing it is would people be interested in listening to shows that take a different show minute by minute and go in that deep dive? Or say, for example, there's that show where they watch the same film over and over again for a year. Worst, I think I saw no, Australian oh no, film. Uh, they, no, they're, they're Kiwi guys, and it's called The Worst Idea Ever. And they started off with... That's it, yeah, yeah. They started off with, I think, Grown Ups 2. Great show. But you, you couldn't kind of pitch that in a kind of logical, rational sense, it is almost sort of organic of the medium. And I think one of the things that's sort of doing research on on the history of podcasting and on, on, on it as a form and why the technology leads to the cultural and artistic outputs that it does is a really sort of fascinating thing. But it, you there, you've just sort of articulated how the, the medium has enabled your personal and creative interest to come to the fore in, in a sort of new way. Yeah, it's, you know, some people have said, oh, if this wasn't a pod- podcast, what would it be? And I said, like, the only option is a book. Yeah. But would it have scratched the itch? Like, I'd already written 
what ended up being like an 80,000 word thesis mm. on the, on the director. <laughs> and, and that was after I had to, I had to get it like a sub like 80,000 and all it was like around, that was like kind of t- topping out. It was up to 125,000 when I started like really editing it. So, you know, that's, if you're taking 125,000 words, that's like a good way through a novel, sure. like a good, like or a good way through like a critical examination. And so you end up going like, well, how much more could I do this? And when you think of like the mean length of the episode is like 40 odd minutes for 179 minutes. That's a lot. Like if you even had someone automated transcription of that, it would be like, it would be like 10,000 pages. And then it would be like, what do you turn this into? And so is there, I just, I genuinely, you know, to your point, I genuinely don't think that there's, there's any other medium that has the room. Mm. It doesn't have the room to do what podcasts can do. And, and, and I think that that's where like I started leaning more into podcasts because I genuinely also, and maybe this is just me, but like, I find my, I, I'm an obsessive guy by nature when it comes to movies. Like a few of my friends will say like, Oh, what are you, you know, my, like my best mate, Maria Lewis and I both share this affinity where we like love a show. We'll obsessively watch it. And so we are both fans of say the show, true detective, sure. you know, the first series, incredible Carrie Fukunaga, you know, Matthew McConaughey, Willie Harrelson, Nick Pizzolatto. And I watched that show maybe seven times, like through. Like that's 56 t- episodes. That's, that turns out, you know, eight episodes. That's 56 other episodes of other shows I could be watching. But I just kept watching it. And so it was then like, what is my practice of obsessively going over great film texts and re- re- repeatedly rewatching them? And how can I find that? And it was just this like, once it came to be, it was like, this is the only thing. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This is the only thing that I can do that is my truest expression. The other thing is, I don't think it could be a book because the actual production of knowledge is this exchange between two people. And that's the thing that really interests me about podcasting is this sense of it's almost kind of like a return to oral histories as the foundation of how we know things. You know what I mean? This this sort of dialectic exchange rather than setting something down on a text. And that's the stasis of, of what we know. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, I I think listening to to your podcast and I think when ours is at, at its best, it's when, something sort of sparks out of the dialogue between two people that you didn't, it wouldn't have happened without that interchange. No. And there were so many times of discovery. Like I, w- I used to just get blown away that I have seen this movie. I may argue more than any other person on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, which is strange to say, but like at this yeah. point, I may be, unless there's some guy who's like John Doe in seven, yeah. who's like just in his apartment and just scrolling in books. Like there may be that guy, but I've seen it so many times and I would, I would watch it through. And, and I think that that's the, that's the collective exchange bit that you talk about that, that is just unparalleled in other medium, which is that I am then, I then begin engaging with this thing that I love and I'm so familiar with through new eyes every time like 170 times, you know, it, it proper in the episodes. And so you're doing this with different people. There's different lenses. There's a different experiences. And they're just taking you through this text over and over in new ways. And so you can't really prepare. Like I used to be really prepared. I'd have lots of notes. I'd have lots of things. And I would have watched the scene over and over again and taken bullet points and whatever and researched the person I'm talking to. And then, you know, Manola Dargis like swaggers in and she's like, oh yeah, like there's Al Pacino looking like Greta Garbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Bill Garibiri walks on and goes, like, he's telling this guy about the heat around the corner. The fucking heat just bought him coffee. Like, get out of there. <laughs> and and then Matt Zolazites is like, isn't it funny when someone's got tunnel vision and they literally drive through a tunnel? And you're like, yeah. 
It's yeah. there. It's been there yeah, every yeah. time. It's been there every time. And so, you know, they're the examples where I, I'm like, and that happened a hundred times in the show. And, and also sometimes it happens to you. Like you watch yourself open up someone else's eyes. Like my friend, I've got a friend, Sean Burns, who's a Bostonian critic, who is a beautifully articulate and funny writer. And he's very funny. He's the kind of guy that you would just meet in a bar and cantankerously argue over things about. And he's come on the show many times. And there was just like one time where he was talking about how he was like, oh, you know, if people have seen Heat, Diane Venora's character, Justine, is uh, Al Pacino's character, Vincent Hanna's wife, his third wife. And she goes through this big, very orchestrated diatribe uh, in the set as a, one of the centerpiece moments in the movie. And it's often criticized that it's very forced and it's, you know, it, that wouldn't happen in real life. And I just challenged Sean one time. And I think it's actually like the birth of our friendship was I said, can you imagine how many nights that woman has washed dishes alone and rehearsed that conversation and rehearsed that fight? You think you've had a fight with someone that you've rehearsed and it sounds rehearsed because you've rehearsed it? That's what it is. And so I think that's also what happens in this dialogue. People challenging your own perspectives make you like cauterize your like laser focus on what your opinion of certain scenes are and how you can explain yeah. things away. And everybody, everybody rehearses their arguments. I don't care what you say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, but I just empathize with us. Like, you know, we've all, we've all been there and had sucky yeah, relationships, so et cetera. True. And you're washing a dish like, oh, fucking yeah. Oh, I should have yeah. said this. I should have said that. And, and there's this thing that happens where you're like, oh, God. Like, and then when you get to it, you screw it up. But like in this moment, she had this perfect moment where her rehearsal went Delivers over it. a retreat. She delivered it. Yeah. I mean, and, and as well, I think it's interesting to talk about kind of like the realism in the film, which I want to, I just want to come to it in, in a minute. But before I get to that, just a couple of questions on, on sort of any of the challenges with the show. I mean, were you ever worried about, you know, repetition? Did you ever think you, you might not get enough guests? Were you, you know, was there ever a point you were halfway through and you were like, oh, yeah, God, this is, this is now getting more difficult than I thought. I don't know. Absolutely could have been. And what my ethos from the very beginning was to have different guests all the time, as many as I could. And it was the reason why it's a challenge. And I, and I don't mean to sound this, say this is a criticism because I definitely had repeat guests who were wonderful and sort of like were almost demanded by fans of the show to come back or like made a case for themselves to come back because they were just a brilliant episode in my mind. And what it was was just making sure that I I shook up all kinds of different people that I wanted to talk to or had seen the movie, loved the movie, didn't like the movie. So that wasn't a prescri- it wasn't a requirement, a prerequisite for the show that you liked heat. In fact, some of my favorite episodes are people who didn't like it because the discussions were funner. And so what I tried to do was just keep injecting new and weird and wonderful things. So it might be an actor, it might be a director, it might be an editor, it might be a cinematographer, it might be someone who's a fan of Heat, then not. And lots of, you know, there's a lot of, in the sort of sausage fest that occasionally is film criticism, um, yeah. there are so many outstanding and like they make you literally pale in comparison in their talents, female film critics out there, that I just tried to get as many of the those incredible women across and queer critics and just everyone who had different ways of approaching it. And I genuinely think that that's how I survived is because if I, if I had approached it like some of the other minute shows I'd heard of who have got consistent guests and then like sporadically sprinkle in special guests, 
I can totally see myself just going down the rabbit hole of like repeating myself. Like the show had repetitions, um, of course, um, but I was always reinvigorated with new guests and new people. And I and it came to this moment to to speak of like where I was ever worried I wasn't going to get guests. Oh shit! Yeah, I was worried. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And sometimes yeah. I had a guest, and then they fell through at the last minute, and and you're like ah, and so you scramble. Um, but yeah, like I just think once I hit, like once I hit ninety, once I hit that coffee shop scene, yeah, I knew it was never gonna stop. I, I, yeah. I, 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 like, and even, and even earlier, it was like sixty episodes in, and I was talk, I'd talked to, to this great guy, Bobby Roberts, who's a film critic in Portland in the U.S., and um, one of my friends had listened to the show, who was listening along the whole way, just said, you know what, this is actually a show now. Like, he, like, you know, he kind of gave me the encouragement that like, this is a show, like, it's great. You know, every new guest you're getting on, they've got some wonderful thing to say. And, you know, it's, and he's like, you're all right too. But like, you know, the guests, <laughs> the guests make the show. And so that's, that's how I got to that. Yeah. We, we have a very similar thing where we're always looking for voices other, other than our own. And, and you, because we're aware as well that we're, you know, two male voices, two white straight male voices. And, and it's <laughs> just kind of like, you know, you, you, you can't be that cliche. You've got to engage with that and, and, you know, trying to, to yeah. offer that, that space or, or engage with other voices and other perspectives. Absolutely part of it. Just, it was interesting there. You're talking about the coffee shop scene. Did you have some horse trading among guests about who, who got what minute? I, I would imagine that there was some, no, I want that. I want Pacino's bit or I want De Niro's bit, you know? No, look, it was so weird. Because I thought that that coffee shop scene would be the most sought after minute or this most sought after scene because actually six minutes, seven minutes if you count the like the 10 mm. second preamble of him asking if he wants to get a cup of coffee. Sure. And I thought, oh man, this is going to be the most sought after scene. I thought this and maybe the heist. And I was proven wrong. Like the tunnel scene right, where De Niro's in the tunnel was the most sought after scene. And I now know why. But that was the most sought after scene. It was crazy. But yeah, I, I, one thing I did in one heat minute was like at the beginning of the show was try and offer people different minutes that they wanted and reflexively, like I should have done more assigning. Like yeah, that's yeah, one yeah. only thing that I would do is because sometimes you, you know, especially me, like having banked an episode like a year ahead and then you catch up to it and I've become a better podcaster and I've formed better opinions. And I listen to that episode. And I'm like, I wish I, I wish Blake now who's now coming up to this had had a chance at that minute. Yep, so yep. yeah, it's one of those things. And I, there are certain people that, that were allowed to dictate their minutes though. There were certain people. I, they remain anonymous I, for now. <laughs> uh, no, look, the, 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 the biggest guest on the show, cause it ended with the incredible filmmaker, Michael Mann, who had been mentioned in every single show up until that point. Yeah. I listened to that episode yesterday, so I want to ask you about something about that in a minute, but, well, but we'll, carry on. We'll, we'll do that. So he didn't in demand a minute. They asked what, what minute, and I said, there's only one minute that he, Mr. Man needs to do, and it's the final one. It was actually Matt Zoller-Zeitz, who uh, is a friend and um, is just one of the most wonderful film critics and editor of RoderEbert.com uh, and writes for New York Magazine. And, you know, there was a couple of other people who, like, you know, Bill Gobiri really wanted to do the Van Zandt getting shot scene. And so a few of my friends asked for certain scenes and I gave them to them. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, the big one, as you're about to ask me, I, I, I assigned that minute. 
because I did listen to it yesterday and uh, you were properly fanboying out for the first sort of five or 10 minutes of that. It was, was. hilarious. You're really good. <laughs> I was, I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a couple, like, if you want to know a truly podcaster fear, it is being on hold where there's no hold music for 15 minutes to talk to Michael Mann. And so I'm sitting there and if you got to listen, I never published it, but there's like in the actual raw recording of that session, there's like 15 minutes of me sitting in a microphone just by myself going, fuck, I hope he didn't hang up. Like, fuck, I hope this works. Like I just, please, please record. Like please all of my equipment work, please everything work. Yeah. But you know, I was definitely geeking out, but once we warmed into the conversation, it was an absolute thrill. You know, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I was um, really pleased with how ready he was to engage in film analysis himself. Because when I've done Q&As with certain directors, that's often a problem. They just don't want to talk about what their films mean. And no. just going back to that that subject of the film in terms of the, the theme of, of people, usually men, being dedicated to their work and doing their jobs well and being sort of obsessed with the minutiae of that. And it's really interesting to me when you watch films like like he that show that and and Michael Mann's films I think generally are about that and even all the President's Men I think is is about that you know maybe to a slightly lesser extent but it's really interesting when you compare it to, to today's philosophy and particularly the kind of you know social media influencer culture that idea of fake it till you make it because this is the total opposite of that and it really means i don't think it, it it doesn't date the films but it just makes you think yeah this is this is a totally different way of thinking than than is pervasive in today's culture i think i think that's where you nailed why i'm drawn to podcasts in the beginning in in the beginning of your analysis which is like what this is doing is so completely and holistically railing against a hot take that I, yeah. that, that this is what makes me feel good about tackling, you know, critical thought. And so like these obsessive guys, like we, they're doing the thankless road work. So am I like, you know, like there are filmmakers like, you know, one minute when I tell people it took two years, I'm like, well, he took two years. Like he took a decade. Like he, he made it as a TV film. That was a like a year long project and scouting and writing. And if we truly want to call out canonical cinematic texts, we can give them some time to breathe. Like we can dedicate some time to telling their story. Um, and, you know, maybe not as psychopathically lengthy as my project, but like you, you can give it some time. I think that that's the, that whole ethos is you got to put the work in. Like that's, and especially in all the president's men, these guys, you know, Bernstein and Woodward, when they start this film and when they start their own story, the real characters or Redford and, and, and Hoffman, they're not great at their job. They have mm. to put the work in. <laughs> they have to put yeah, the yeah. hours yeah. in. They, they, they've got some raw talent. They've got some good stuff, but they're not, they're not there yet. And I think that that's what is so wonderful about Heat. We arrive at the moment of two characters who are there. And they are literally humming on the same trajectory as one another in sort of like external concentric circles. It's like two asteroids that come around every 80 years. And, and for some reason, this time, their trajectory is immediately going to crash into one another. Like they're going to they're collide and we're going to just sort of wait and see the, you know, the sparks. And it's like that frequency, total different ethos, total different morality sense, total different sort of psychological profile. But ultimately, there's this like deep similarity. And I love in that final interview with Michael Mann where he talks about there are no other two 
human beings in the universe who are more alike and more connected in that moment than in the final moment of heat, like those two guys, Macaulay and Hannah. And so I think that that's where you, where you approach it and they collide. Um, that's that, that, that whole ethos is just, it's riddled in the film. Sure. And he talks about, I think related to that man's talks, he gives a great little phrase, which is the, the difference between contradictory and contrapuntal state of mind in the audience, which is when you're with Hannah, you want him to win and you want him to catch De Niro. But when you're with De Niro, you want him to escape. And this kind of really comes to the fore at the very, very end of the movie. And that is just an amazing sort of theoretical understanding of how your movie making works was I found really satisfying to listen to, you know? <laughs> Look, it was really satisfying for me to listen to. Like, it's like an out-of-body experience of freaking out. You know, it's like they say don't meet your heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But I got to have two conversations with my cinematic hero and um, neither of them disappointed. He was just so incredibly engaged with the philosophy that he wanted to embed in the characters and why he was telling that story. Because, And this is why genre movies can sometimes completely eclipse... Art, artistic movies is because they ha- they they have like a form and a, and a scaffolding that keeps the structure of how we engage with them, um, but then they can just be loaded and jam packed with all this sort of ultimately sociopolitical commentary or you know sort of existential crises as is in this movie. Yeah, I just who who would think of a director who's talking about a movie he made twenty four years ago talking about it's the difference between counter counterpuntal philosophies in the audience he's a one of a kind for 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 both of these guys uh the real important thing is that who they uh who they were determines how they are now and how they are now is determining what's going to happen to them so macaulay is is fortunate enough to to pass to die with you know in in a very close contact with the guy who's with whom he has the most rapport in the again in the artificial limited universe of 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 the, of the motion picture at the one at the same time this is the man who killed him yes and leading and and that confrontation that combat between the two of these men is um, is something that we had two different states of mind about, and that's totally intentional and constructed. And why I say it's contrapuntal in this sense that uh, we're invested in, mostly invested in Hannah. Uh, when we're in the Hannah story, we're not 50% with Hannah. We're 100% with Hannah. We want to know what's going to happen. We want Hannah to 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 intercept. Macaulay. We want that to happen. At the same time, when we're with Macaulay, we want him to escape with Edie. Uh, we don't want to. We don't want him to stop for Wayne Grove. There's very good reasons why he stopped for Wayne Grove, but just taking it kind of in reverse, um, we want him to escape, and um, and we want that to happen. And our investment in it is emotionally, psychologically, philosophically is is also at at a, at 100%. So then the question became why do that and can can you bring audiences into those uh, kind of kind of, not contradictory but contrapuntal states of mind because if one can then you have uh, something that kind of lives in a way that sustains in memory as opposed to stories that totally uh, uh, end and then they're resolved, and then they're 
forgotten or maybe a small piece of poignance is, is missing. And I'm moved, I was moved by Vivaldi, I was moved by Bach. So it's not accidental that, that I was interested in constructing it. But from that, uh, from kind of the genome of this end conflict, uh, you know, working working backwards, it, be, it it had to be the the culmination of who each man is, um, gets driven into to this to this moment. So you finished one heat minute, and and then you have the 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 next spin off. I don't know if you want to call it that, but then increment vice comes comes into being or develops, and and this is with in collaboration with. Travis Woods, who I know is uh, somebody you've collaborated with quite a bit. And I've just listened to a couple of minutes of, of that. But my colleague, Neil, is a huge fan of Inherent Vice. So if you need a guest for that, he would definitely be up for being on Increment Vice. That's for sure. We're going to connect Neil and Travis. Look, what, what happened was Travis was... Uh, Travis is one of the most outlandishly talented writers I've ever read. And... Uh, He's just a wonderful, wonderful voice um, and basically one of the members of the Bright Wall Darkroom publication online. So, you know, when we talk about real, true, high-quality film criticism online, it's those guys. And so Travis and I just connected on Twitter and and he then became a part of One Heat Minute because he's a fan of the film and a fan of the show. And, and then he was on the show for like a second last minute of the show because we'd had such a great time talking. I thought, I want to give this to someone who I think is going to who's who maybe can help me through uh this this episode and he was so amazing and and we developed a really strong connection after that and it just so happened that you know I I've I've always had this like mini list of films that I would ever want to approach um that I think that have that have earned the kind of examination minute by minute because you know there's a couple of other little dalliances that I've done but in my mind that worth like this kind of scrutiny and inherent vice is one of them. I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I actually utterly obsessed with this movie. I've watched, you know, I've watched inherent vice countless times. And Travis wrote this like stunning piece for bright wall, dark room about inherent vice. And, um, I talked to him about it. And I said, you, you got it. You should do a podcast on this. And he was like, I don't know how to do a podcast. Uh, basically I don't know how to do a podcast. And he's like, but I, but I've always wanted to do one and I'd want to work with you. And I said, well, look, I've got your show. It's called Increment Vice. And he laughed and ha, ha, ha. But it then just happened. I We sort of collaborated on what the format could be, what the format could be that would make the most sense for the film, how we'd want to enter and exit this altered state of Doc's altered state, you know, and we, we've got the incredible Kat Corbett, who's a radio announcer in the US, um, to be our narrator, and she's a friend. And so, yeah, we kind of just developed this thing. And... So I, I function really as a producer yeah. um, on the show. How's that going? It's great. It's it's wonderful. Travis is having a great time um, doing the show. He's, I knew that he would be a great engine. You know, it's like sometimes you know that people, do they have the stamina? And Travis, like I knew that he would have the stamina for, for Vice. Like I just knew that he'd be the great guy to do it. And I've just had a, I've just had a ball listening to him and hearing him grow as a, as like a broadcaster to sort of wrangle that sort of stuff. And as a podcaster, because he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's a different muscle that you flex. You would know this diary better than anyone. When you're the host, you're driving this show. Like I might be talking a lot, but you're like nodding along, keeping me on, on track. And so watching him flip, having to flip that and be more of a host and stuff, it's good. And we've worked a really good sort of rhythm 
um, editing the shows and doing all that sort of stuff, but he's been so great. And man, th- if there's one thing you talked about different voices, I am so exceptionally proud of Increment Vice for just the amazing lineup of people that that show has had so far. Great. Um, and especially yeah. female film critics and programmers and wonderful male film critics. And we're aspiring for the biggest guns of all with that, that show. So you might, if we, if we get lucky enough, we might hear from, you know, PTA, if we, if we ever get the luck out there, I'll throw it out there now, but yeah, look, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful show and Travis is the man and he's, he's built for it. Yeah. 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 yeah Cause um, we're just to, to in the middle of taping a, oh, well, I'm in the middle of editing a, an episode on the cinematic voice. Yes. And Neil, Neil did an, it's got contributions for about 10 academics and film critics about what, how the voice works in cinema. And Neil did a, an excerpt from Inherent Vice <laughs> yeah. about Joaquin, about Joaquin Phoenix's voice, basically. Yes. So he would be good to talk, to, talk to about that. Love that. So then you're also doing all the President's Minutes now, which you're into, what, what are you on to now? Minute 12 of that? Uh, yeah, Minute 11 is up. Uh, right. Minute 12 is going to go live very, very shortly. So by I guess by the time people listen to this, like Minute 12 and 13 will probably be up. Um, the goal is around around five episodes a fortnight. So hopefully you'll see twenty, roughly 20 episodes up by the end of February because I, I'm aiming to have the show finished by January, which would be in line with the new presidential inauguration Fantastic. Um, in the United States. Cause I, cause I, I, I wanted it to be basically a year. So for 138 minutes, what, you know, you minus the credits will probably be about 132 episodes of the show ish, 133. Um, you know, we're, we're moving along really nicely and it's, it's been a really interesting project so far. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as I said at the beginning, it's a film I'm, you know, <laughs> Very familiar with, and yeah, obsessed with. and obsessed. It seems to me that the podcast works almost like there's a grounding of the podcast on the paradox that it both holds up as a film, but also seems kind of quaint in its depictions of crusading journalists searching for the truth. I was just wondering if that was that the tension in your mind before you even started that this was going to be the kind of anchoring point, maybe. That, that sort of bloomed organically okay. because it started like, you know, so what happens is when Watergate gets mentioned as it gets trotted out for any number of, you know, whether it's UK, Australian, American, political, the overarching umbrella of political fuckery basically internationally gets the Watergate or the gate suffix. And so what, what really struck me was, I guess originally was watching morality play out in the face of politics and so i think that that was what was absent and and what was uh what i found sort of how can i put this it's it was like oxymoronic in our modern culture Mm. like watching people pick a side pick a color pick a team and therefore that meant that things were amoral and what i was consistently drawn to and that might feed into the quaintness of all the president's men is that people it took a, it took a while to be people to be shaken out of like really the shock that this could be happening, but you then watch the morality unfold and people do things to set records straight and and being compelled to do it. And so I guess that was what I was craving in a modern context. And then what happens is, and just you would know this as a as a person who loves this movie, this movie is so effortlessly rewatchable. Mm. Like you could turn it on 
at any moment and you're watching the whole thing again. And so what I found is a kinship when I was watching Heat so much and then watching this while even One Heat Minute was happening, this is my little like escape, was this is a movie that is, it's telling a completely well-known story. It is almost a first like a first-hand source or like a primary source from, you know, a historical perspective because it's something that was being produced while the guys were producing the book. It's shot, you know, like in 1975, so a year after Nixon's um, impeachment and it's released in January, you know, 76. It's being produced in 74. while the guys are still writing the not only their own book but then the stuff that got translated into the final days. And so it just became this like this – I don't know. It's like this crazy cocktail of fascination for me of like, you know, political espionage, like the process of journalism, morality, um, what we consider a primary and secondary source when it comes to cinema. Like it just, it's, it's a, it's a tangled web it weaves and it just, I I found like there was always going to be something, some avenue to approach it. Yeah. And it does tap into the, the anxiety that I have or the, the kind of, constant self-reflexive question about whether analyzing films actually matters and whether film actually yeah. matters do you know what i mean and and yeah and, and even that that sense that yeah i mean j- just as an example that we just had brexit here obviously i knew it was going to happen anyway and, and when the election happened and the tories got back in it was just clear that was it it was over and i just thought to myself the last three years of reading of tweeting of discussing this issue were, were a complete and utter waste of time and, and that's how i felt i mean maybe that's exaggerating slightly but it's that sense now that that we're working in a different dimension that we as uh, practitioners of the media haven't caught up with in the sense that algorithms and ai and all of this kind of stuff is is defining the way that we we engage with the world and and just in the way that we approach sort of we're watching media and we're going to talk about it and we're going to tell you the truth about it or you know what i mean that that, that's (laughs) sort of the core or the you know the framework of here are the truth and here are the lies and even the people who are liars know the parameters of that 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 all seems to have gone it's like the sun this movie has an orbit it has a moral orbit it's like, this is something that you, you look at this movie and as quaint as it is, you want to get back to. You want to feel like when people tell the truth and you want to feel like when people get uncovered that there's a reaction. Yeah. Like you, you want to feel like that there's going to be justice. Like that's, that's ultimately what a lot of these texts are, that there's justice. And like sometimes it's an uncomfortable justice because of that counterpunnel forces of, you know, understanding where people are coming from and their perspectives, but then there's what's right. And, and that's where like, that's what movie fantasies do for us. You know, it's like watching once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, it's a fairy tale title to a fairy tale ending to something that couldn't have a fairy tale ending. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. you know, Django Unchained, if Django doesn't get to, you know, to exact bloody vengeance and ride off victoriously into the sunset, who cares? Inglorious Bastards, Hitler and all of the German high command die. Like, yeah. there's those things that have those anchor points. And I think that that's what all, all the president's men is. And I don't think it's a, I think it's a great, it's a great way to go back and say, this is kind of us expressing artistic examination in the way that I want to do it. And I'm going to do it without and I'm going to do it in a medium in a way that I want to do it. And I'm going to do it in an uncompromising way because I genuinely think personally, especially as a consumer of podcasts, many different types, but as a consumer of podcasts and this medium, it's like, I don't want your Vox pop bullshit. I don't want your short form interview. I don't want your toothless review. I don't want that. I want, 
I want to hear people's heart and soul be poured into what they're doing. And I want them to do it and articulate it. And I especially have taken a really high watermark for anything that is myself and One Heat Minute Productions in that I also want discourse. I want really fucking insanely talented and articulate people to pressure test my thinking. <laughs> and I especially want people who are different to me yeah. um, from different backgrounds and who have different interests. And I, I think that that's what podcasting and this movie, all the president's men and all the president's minutes, the show, what, what I hope for. And I it already like in like 20 episodes recorded or 20 or so actually now I'm sort of getting into the mid twenties of what's being recorded. Um, that's a good tip for podcast. This show being about podcasting. If you're going to do a minute podcast, you got to be prepared. Yeah. You got to plan and you got to work your ass off to make sure that you stay ahead otherwise you lose your you're in a tailspin. But yeah, so you, I I relish talking. I relish that that and and what's so great about art at the moment is that what is absent in political debate at the moment is just the understanding that we can have completely different opinions and we're okay. Mm. Like we I, I when this ends I'm going to go and live my life in Australia. You're going to go live your life in England, in the UK, and that's it. Mm. Like, we don't have to then strap on this stupid red or blue in the United States or, you know, conservative or liberal, whatever. You don't have to do that. Like, we can have a discussion about art in that sense. And and so, yeah, well, in the more – I can't wait, it, to, to your point, I can't wait to have a conser- conservatives on all the president's men. To tell me how great Nixon is, I, in reflection, I can't wait. I can't wait. Like I, I genuinely am going to relish it because if that's the conversation that we're going to have, that's cool. But we're going to do it through the frame of a film, and it's you know you can be philosophically different to me, uh, and so yeah, I think it's this weird conundrum that we're in that we're like, we're just going to keep expressing things in the way we wish that they could be expressed, and we're going to keep following and supporting the publications and the podcasts and the mediums that we like, and. Very slowly, we're going to turn this massive Titanic ship around from clickbait because, you know, as even today, the more, the most, you know, some of the most heartening things is like Knives Out, Parasite, and us have all made more than $200 million at the US box office this year. And it's like in years, they're like, oh, no independent movies, no small budget movies can make money. No, there's no appetite for adult films at, at the cinema. And it's like, well, yeah, there is really great quality, really great quality films that are given a chance to be advertised and promoted and be part of the critical discourse, they can break through. So yeah, it's just one of those things where I think it's like, if you said, Blake, you need to now just tweet about every minute of the yeah, I'm yeah. just like, I'm not going to do no, that. No. I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. And also it's that sense of, you know, if you're not creating what, well, then what are you doing? Yes. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're just, you're just in, <laughs> imbibing everything else that, that, that people are telling you it's in the creation, I think. And that's where I, I think podcasting is so, has been so beneficial to me particularly. And, um, yeah, I just, I've got a couple more questions course, to finish off, but I just want to say th- thanks so much for your time. This has been, this has been really great. Um, but I wanted to finish off on, on thinking about the relationship between podcasting and film. And yeah. I'm, I'm writing about, I'm, I'm writing an article right now, sort of a long academic article about film podcasts and, you know, naming yours and, and various other different f- um, film format podcasts and why they work. And I don't know if you've heard this phrase, you know, it's been, it's been, podcasting has been talked about as a cinema for the years. Yes. Yes. And 
you know, we've talked about this this sense of maybe emerging a new form of film criticism based on this sort of dialogic development. And I don't know if you've read Sherry Turkle's book, Reclaiming the Conversation. No, I haven't. That's really worth, yeah, re- worth reading that. Yeah, yeah, really, really sort of speaks to podcasting kind of indirectly. So I was just wondering, do, do you think that it's possible that a non-visual medium could be seen as cinematic or understood or received as a cinematic experience. Danny Boyle, many years ago, had a great interview with Danny Boyle, and he said, cinema's 70% sound. And so I, I'm such an audiophile when it comes to podcasts, right. and especially that was aspirationally what, that was what the format cried out for with, uh, with Increment Vice, was we wanted to set a mood. And so our show starts with, you know, the lighting of a cigarette and gulls on a beach and and a narrator who sounds remarkably like Sorta Leash from the film, you know, guiding us gleefully into a sort of pot smoked haze. And increasingly, you know, in 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 one of the most recent episodes of the show, like dives down one of our guest playlists um, that she made for Doc and Sorta Leash. And so like, you know, people are listening and there's music cues that are popping up as the songs are mentioned and things like that. So I definitely think there's a cinematic quality because you can, there's an atmospheric quality of the intimacy of having cans on your ears. Like, especially for me, like I like my overhead, you know, you can have in-ears or even your ovaries. And it's like, there's something over your headphones. There's something that you can get in to intimate spaces with people and, I actually genuinely hadn't thought of the idea that it could be more than that because podcasting, you know, when it's beginning, it's pretty raw. It's not trying to be as manipulative and as shorthand as radio because, you know, the way the stories are told. But the thing that I loved was uh, it was actually the sequel to Serial called S-Town or, you know, shorthand for Shit Town. And I just, as a listener, I marveled at every interview, courtroom sounds, a a town bar. And I just, I remember listening to that as another, uh, as a, sh- as a show and going, I feel like I'm in that bar. I feel like I'm having that conversation. And so I think it's that it's everything but visual, you know, it, it, it's like, and, and c- c- cinematic as an adjective, there are cinematic soundscapes that can be created because some movies are just dead by intent or by lack of craft um, when it comes to the oral landscape. But I certainly think that there's a quality that there's a synergy that can happen when you're experiencing and reflecting and remembering things because, and and, and when we talk about cinematics, this is a really weird thing that I talk about, but I feel like I'm a schizophrenic when I'm watching heat again. And it's because there are 179 minutes of almost hour long conversations that start like a Rolodex clicking over in my head when I'm watching it because I see everything happening and hear it happening. And I think that that's where some of that, like that portal element can start coming into like cinematic podcasts because it's like you are rewatching the thing and it's not just a DVD commentary because that's a whole other landscape. You, you, you're being dived in and even if it's in snippet form, it's remembering things and it's, it's, it's becoming, it's accessing your perceptions versus the reality of what the text is. And so, and your impressions, yeah, it's like this weird impressionistic memory scape, <laughs> a memory cinema scape of, of, of what it is when it's being discussed like that, especially if someone dives into one random episode of One Heat Minute to listen to the guest talk 
and they don't really remember the movie that well, like I can imagine there being this really cognitive distance between what actually the text is and what they remember it to be. Yeah, I, I agree with the, with a lot of that. And, and it, that's the kind of way of thinking about it that, that I've gone about in this article. And particularly, I think that that sense of understanding that we're all brought up as cinematic beings or, or we're ingrained yeah. in a cinematic culture. So like, say, yeah. for example, at the beginning of uh, All the President's Minutes, your use of the typewriter that's yeah. not it's not just the typewriter sound it's the typewriter from all the, the president's president. men and i know that because <laughs> i I, rem- I remember the sound clip and i know that's the distance between the clicks <laughs> yes An excerpt of All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Barry Sussman, the city editor, was intrigued. He dug into the Post's library clippings on Colson and found a February 1971 story, which an anonymous source described Colson as one of the original backroom boys, the brokers, the guys who fix things when they break down and do the dirty work when it's necessary. Woodward's story about Hunt, which identified him as a consultant who had worked in the White House for Colson, included the quotation, and noted that it came from a profile written by Ken W. Clawson, a current White House aide who until recently was a Washington Post reporter. The story was headlined, White House Consultant Linked to Bugging Suspects. And what I do, because I've seen the film, I can imagine what that looks like again. And I think what that what, podca- what podcasting does is, without the images, you have to reach for them in your brain. So it's kind of requiring the listener to jump a little bit further. And that's and, and that can happen in the conversation, which is why I referenced the, that book, because she talks about this idea of the gradual completion of thoughts while speaking. Yes. Which I think is what podcasting <laughs> yes. is yes. is basically built on, really. And, and the, the cinematic element allows you a sort of bridge to do that thinking. It's funny that you say that because... Um the theme to One Heat Minute, I, I got a friend of mine, an Aussie musician, to like craft me this sort of synthesized version of the theme. And a lot of folks who love the show and listen to it a lot get to the moment in the film where the sound clip is taken from because he riffs on an existing sound clip from the movie. And they started to say that it like weirded them out because they, they said, oh, the, there's something wrong with the, the sound. Like mm. there's something wrong with this clip because – my show had infected them yeah, 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 with yeah. my alteration, with my riff on that particular clip so many times that when they got to it in the film, like it weirded them out. Yeah, And I had that feedback multiple times and I even started experiencing it myself. And so I was like, yeah, that is weird. Like it's like my show became part of the mythos of that. Yeah, And yeah, like, you know, I too love that all the president's man typewriter. That's why I wanted to kick start the show with it because I it, like, if you're in the next room and someone hits play, there's a good, you know, 10, 15 second pause before click, yeah, yeah, click, 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 typing in the date. And you're like, oh, yes, this yeah. is it. We're here. Yeah. And it, and it's amazing as well how the conversation that, that you have on, on, on your format of podcasting does is able to spin out to an hour from one minute. Yes. You know, and, and obviously, you know, you go on all, all different kinds of directions, but there is a quite a... You know, I would say probably there's around a 15, 20 minute direct analysis of that one minute in each podcast. And then, you know, all the other conversation kind of sparks off around that, which is, again, I I don't think that, you know, there there would be no 
and film review or analysis written that would be able to go as deep as that in, in a kind of analytical sense, I don't think. No, it's very rare. And I, 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 but I will call out, you know, there are some writers out there whose voices and ability to, to do that is exactly precisely on a sort of macro scale what the show aspires to be. I think the best film critic in the world is Manola Dargis. And I'm really lucky that I've got a relationship with her, having done the show so many times with her. And there's sort of this, when Manola's allowed to write lengthier features, her voice is so unmistakable and the tangents that can be drawn and the and, and the way that she discusses things. And uh, what I've been proud of, at least in the early minutes of all the President's Minutes, is something that we discovered much later in One Heat Minute, which is when you've got the more context in the film, the way that you examine a minute, I, I'd like it's like skewering meat. Like you're getting a skewer... And you kind of like talk about things that have led up to that moment. And then you get to this morsel. That's where like all of the chunky discussion is the actual minute itself. And then how that threads through the rest of the narrative. And so what's been cool is even so early because of the nature of all the president's men and the topics that sort of surround it, you're just skewering these from all different angles from journalism, from cinema, from, um, you know, just from backgrounds of storytelling. And, 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 and that's, what's been so fascinating. Um, uh, for me to go through that, um, to go through that journey. But like, I totally agree. There's when I hear the gulls at the beginning of inherent increment vice, every time when I'm editing it, I'm like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm at Gordita beach. I'm at Gordita beach. That's where I want to be. I, I want to be right on Gordita beach. I want to hear what Travis has got to say. I want to hear our great narrator cat as sort of leash, you know, lulling me into this show. And, and that's, that's, that's where I want to be. Brilliant. Blake, thanks so much for taking the time out. This has been absolutely wonderful. Mate, you, you are so welcome. Thank you so much. And it's um, it's really fun to go inside baseball on podcasts occasionally. It's really nice. And it's been a great to chat to you. And it's actually, I would love to, I must I must go and seek out my um, my actual thesis uh, to see if, if, if our at least appendix that lists our bibliographies of studied texts yeah. must have intersected in like some crazy ways <laughs> Yeah, yeah. For, for studying that sort of stuff. So uh, thank you so much for, for chatting. So yeah, pretty uh, comprehensive chat there that I had with Blake, which I really, really enjoyed. Thanks, I thank him for uh, really taking the time out because he's a he's a busy guy, <laughs> you know, pretty pro- prolific in terms of uh, churning out these um, these podcasts. Because he's also doing this contention now, which is little ten minute conversations he's having, and he's had one with me just yesterday, which is really about what's going on, you know, in the world right now. A little sort of checking in with people that he knows and that he admires. And it's, I, I think it's just a way for him and, and his sort of circle of contacts to to keep in touch. And a really, really nice idea. So they're, they're worth listening to as, as well. But um, Neil, what did you make of that? Loved it. Yeah, really great conversation. He is, uh, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's just really fascinating talking about film and podcasting. And I just really enjoyed that conversation uh, between the two of you. I thought it was, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Loved it. Cool. Um, lots to lots to unpack, really, um, and and kind of ask. Which uh, I, I'll just start with the things that I kind of liked. I I thought it was nice that you you met a kindred kindred spirit in terms of masculinity in the movies. Um, I love that little uh, 
little exchange. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels in your kind of academic work uh, together, which is which is really nice. Um, and obviously sports movies. And the sports movie metaphors at the start are kind of, I think they're really fascinating because I think it's it's something that we are always kind of conscious of and interested in and thinking about, which is, you know, how do you conceptualize the, the creative process and and how do you how do you get better at something and how do you evolve something and so much of it is is similar to artistic practice and kind of sports practice isn't it you know and a lot of that's driven by the the desire to just keep doing the thing um and trying to move forward with it um which i think is is great and i think it's what's what was clear from the conversation with 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 blake is that he and a lot of parallels between his podcast and our podcast is that that his desire to do it came from wanting to do the thing for the thing itself Mm. and we talk about a lot about that don't we in podcasting which is you know if if a if a conversation starts with me and someone says well i think i should have a podcast i'm like "Mm, please don't do that (laughs) um because you're the like any but i would say that about i think i should write a book or i think i should make a film it's like please don't you know like if you come in and say i need to do i need to talk about this or i need to make this or i need to tell this story then it's like yeah let's you then you should do that but just having a thing because it's a thing that everyone's got i just i i and i think you can just see through that a mile and what's great about blake's work and he's very articulate about that is that what drives the the form is the content you know mm. and the content is something he's interested in, and he thinks a few other people will be interested in but it turns out that actually there's a lot of people interested in um and that must have been quite gratifying to kind of have that connection based on how we've approached the podcast yeah no i think that's absolutely right and um i think his combination of of movie appreciation and you know having a background in the sort of academic side of it but then he's he's definitely much more kind of obsessional and you know um, embraces that sense of fandom than than say I would but I think he's channeled that in a way that has created something that is is really unique and on the surface of it you know without the podcast form how else could that work I mean we we talked a little bit about that it's it is the an example of a film podcast that is totally true to a kind of cinematic uh, sensibility but also is you know absolutely just a podcast you know what I mean you could you could write a, a book about heat or all the president's men or whatever but you know that's been done before and the way that this has done has truly sort of opened up a new avenue I think of of criticism and again that's one of the questions I sort of wanted to to ask you in terms of this idea of of where criticism is in relationship to to podcasting i know we've talked about it a lot and it's something i've sort of been thinking about about obviously with doing the voice episode and blake's just um done a piece for vague visages on that why criticism uh series that they've got i haven't read it yet but um i'll put the link up to that on the on the show notes but it's it's interesting this this sense of podcasting is it truly the case that it's opened up a new a new kind of mode of film criticism, a new mode of criticism, depending for for any form that you might want to engage with. Yeah, I think it has, and I think that what really I kind of I was that walking the dog listening to it, and um, struck me was when he was talking about this idea of it could have been a book, but obviously it's not a book. That made me think, well, actually, yes, and now that's a real option, isn't it? And I imagine it's going to become an increasingly attractive option. Yeah, 
book or podcast. And I think that I think I don't think we're far away from, you know, the next sort of ten years or whatever, five mm-hmm. ten years of of that being a really publishable yeah. enterprise, you know, and where people are saying, okay, is this a book or is it a podcast? Because I think yeah, you could have a written series of interviews with people about heat in that depth, but it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be challenged in the in the um, in the moment. It's not going to have those awakenings from either side, which I think are really fascinating. And that thing that podcasts can do, and I think Blake's right in that that they are uniquely able to spend the time and be that live space for that collective exchange, as you kind of both both saying. I think it is viable, and I think it's a it's a real it's a real medium for criticism and i think that like everything there are people who are tuned into that i think blake's one of them and there are some people who are just yeah just kind of thinking well well a podcast is another part of our brand it's just speaking about the thing we're writing about and that's fine and there's you know the big names will be fine with that you know the big publications if they're still going hopefully um in the next the next few months and couple of years you know they'll be but 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 also within the space there are unique properties to it that are being explored and showing yeah actually that and i think you did it with the voice you know and i think we've done it i think we've done it in the past on a variety of episodes where Mm. we've really tried to explore and exploit the medium for what it could be you know and this idea of, of it being cinematic i think is is right because i think what's what's been interesting in kind of teaching in the last few years is kind of students saying oh this is cinematic and this is you know cinematic television or a cinematic video game and and I always challenge that because I'm like, well, what is it about it that is cinematic? Mm. And I'm not necessarily able to articulate or quantify it in a, but but I know that you know just shooting on a 35 mil camera like Breaking Bad and having a techno um, cinemascope or a you know widescreen shot on a long take is not cinematic to me necessarily. But I know that you know the girlfriend experience or Twin Peaks or Atlanta feel like they're exploring some kind of mode that could be cinematic in the same with video games or whatever. And I think that in the space of podcasting, there's an approach that is that could be called cinematic. And I think you know we've we've tried to explore that. But what's great is that what Blake's doing is different to what we're doing, but it's also cinematic in the mm. same way that you know that John Wick is cinematic, and so is Simon Liang. You know, it, it's I think it's a broad church, but I think it's definitely approach where you're looking at the form and saying, okay, well, what can what can we do here that's interesting and unique and is emotional and, and, and intellectual and whatever and, and kind of, but it is about connecting, isn't it? It's about connecting with human beings and it's not necessarily about delivering information. And that's what I love about Increment Vice is that a lot of the information because of the nature of it is repetitive, but the the exchange of information and the connection between people and how that evolves and changes and shifts is, is, is something else and I think that we're really we're really lucky to be in in a space where you know there's a number of people doing that and it's a kind of it's a, it's a it feels like you're part of a collective yeah of, of people doing that yeah it's interesting because it's like you know he shouted out San Fragoso who obviously you've sp- spoken to and you know we both listen to and like and it does feel like when you're talking also to Sarah Mary from um, Projections Podcasts yeah. and, you know, various other people that we that we know and have had and engaged with. It does feel like there's a sense of within a really broad film podcast world, there is a sort of particular sensibility of podcasts that do that do try to approach this kind of cinematic, experiential, immersive 
type of show, I suppose. But that then is is inflected with either fandom or with kind of academia or and uh, but also sort of people's personal experiences. I don't. It, it's very difficult to articulate, but it's a sort of. I suppose it's a sort of subset of film podcasting, whereas, you know, like, you know, film rev- straight review podcasts or whatever are another subset or, or you know, filmmaking podcasts and script writing podcasts are another subset. I, th- I don't know what you would call it, but I think there is definitely a sort of connecting tissue between various podcasts like, like ours and, and Blake's and, and the Projections podcast that, that, do, that do attempt a form that, that is trying to approach a cinematic experience without images and i suppose it is calling to trying to call to that listeners the imagination that the listener has in terms of being provoked by what they're hearing in the podcast so say for example you know if we mention certain films i think we do it in a way that tries to 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 almost kind of interpolate if you want to use a fancy word but call to the viewer and say yeah do you remember that bit of that that film and and this is how I felt about it or this is how I responded to it or this is how I intellectualize it and then that then offers the the listener a kind of bridge to be able to take that and interpret it and and take it on board in any way that they that they want but have that kind of like yeah that I remember that cinematic moment watching that yeah I think we're definitely kind of yeah kind of building bridges and connections and uh kind of reaching out and seeing if the connections are there as well you know which is one of the great things that podcasts can do that blake talks about again is you know kind of sharing something and then having that either pushed back or um accepted and it becomes a bridge you know you have to kind of go back and rebuild the bridge you know and i think that that liveness is is key to understanding that a lot of a lot of what criticism is is an exploration and it's not a fact and it's not it, you know, it's 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 trying to find your way through something and trying to make connections and links and be that within film or or without a film. You know, like that. That's um, I'm just reading um, Simon Reynolds' Retromania and, and sort of the, he's, he talks a lot about when culture kind of changed in the 90s from you know referencing or being its own kind of unique thing, uh, particularly in music, to kind of just referencing itself. And um, what we're trying to do is kind of reference as much as we can but also kind of understanding that the, the the context is wider than just film i think two things really in terms of what you're saying there which i think are are, are worth pointing out is one that you sort of called it like a substrata which i do think it is but i think it's it's it's, it's a substrata that echoes you know the the cinematic kind of f- films that those kind of podcasts are interested in and engaging with which are different to the films that that sit up atop the the tree for mm. most of the time, you know, like there are blockbusters which are not interested in the kinds of formal experimentation or search for kind of aesthetic connection that that, that they might, you know, not all of them, but the majority. It's it's a different kind of thing that sits at the top of the tree, which is what most people are drawn to and most people listen to. And I think that podcasts are the same. I think that there's podcasts at the top which do something very, very simple and straightforward. And then there's others that do things which are either obviously or deceptively challenging and, and 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 interesting but those are also interested in and understand that film is is audio visual and the audio is as prominent in so much of it as the visual and mm. it's like you know what can you do with understanding that when people are watching cinema they are watching images but they're also taking in sounds in a particular way and i think that 
podcasts know that they can't necessarily do anything with the visual so it's kind of maximizing the audio which is why i think so many kind of cinephiles critics film fans are kind of drawn to those kind of podcasts because it's understood that film is is a is sound and vision um mm. in in playing you know in interplay together and that those kind of podcasts will will acknowledge the the value of sound not explicitly by saying it doesn't sound important but just through their form and through their approach to it and sound for ghosts is a great example because his is just seemingly conversations but there's so much going on the interplay between the people and silence and space and breath you know like there's there's a lot going on there which is sound driven which is uh, adding to that that kind of emotionality of the of the experience yeah yeah it's fascinating isn't it because if you listen to often you you'll find that um a guest that's been on San Fragoso's show has just <laughs> prior to that been on Mark Maron and it's very interesting often listening to the two different types of interviews and I think it does it does sort of relate to that two levels where I think Mark Maron is the best at going for that broad I'm I'm the ordinary guy on the street and I mean he's got a lot of knowledge as Mark Maron but you know what I mean he's trying to open up as broad a, a conversation as he can with his his guest and about their history and, and and just in a in a clear way this is what you've done and let's talk about the main points of that and that's maybe the best example of that but then i think sam does go into much more intricate detail particularly on in elements of what makes them tick as as artists and creatives which again i think is is it's not you know a straight film industry podcast in that sense but is do, doing something cinematic which is really, really interesting and, and, and calls to this this potential, you know, the, hopefully this revitalization that podcasting has done to the to the whole the whole genre of a kind of interview, which Absolutely, I think it has yeah. done. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um and I think that, you know, it's evident in your interview with Blake there that, you know, that there is a, a willingness and a freedom and a kind of adventurousness in a lot of the people who are engaged in the podcast space to to try and formulate meaningful exchange you know even with strangers you know mm. and, and 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 invest in the space uh with trust which i think is is fantastic and when you sort of see that trust being repaid it's it's really rewarding one question i did want to ask was uh do you think you could do it do you think you could take a film and do what they do which is really break down it into the minutiae for 166 plus episodes i think i could definitely do it on paper it's just the time yeah. that's the only thing that would would stop me from from doing that i mean we talked a little bit about the sort of production that's behind that which obviously takes an awful lot of work and you know i didn't i, I didn't go into it too much detail about you know <laughs> obviously you know you're not sort of saying so how do you get all of your income you know what i mean how yeah. do you have this life it's uh it, you can't really do that, but I think it, it would definitely be possible. It'd be interesting, though. I think I, I would want to steer away from doing film. I, I, I'd want to do a, a sort of a different type of film. I think. I think obviously he, Increment Vice, and all the Presidents Men. Although they're, they're very different films, they are they are sort of you know what could be described within the masculine kind of canon. And I think that that's. That's really interesting. I mean, I would really like to see Blake do something like Fight Club and be do something that he was not totally in love with or that w required a lot more criticism. Because I agree with you, the further I get away from that film, the more criticism I have of it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And I think it's still, but I still think it's a text that's w worth really engaging with because I think it says a lot about 
the masculinity that came after it and why it was such a popular film. But I think something that is... Um, I don't know what the answer would be or what film I would I would choose, but I don't know. Something outside of that that kind of filmmaking, I think, would be really interesting to go into a deep dive. Something that that maybe required, you know, or, or didn't hadn't had that level of of intense sort of scrutiny minute minute by minute. That and it wouldn't necessarily have to be something niche. I think you could look at something that was really well-known in sort of critical circles. Like, I don't know, something like Sally Potter's Orlando, for example. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine sort of doing that minute by minute? You would just be, there would be so much there yeah. to think about. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Great. So um, thanks for that, Neil. Really great to get your insights. And here we are at episode 99. And it's the big one next. It is, yeah. And uh, who'd have thunk it? Uh, <laughs> who'd have thunk it? It's still, it's still surreal to think that that's the... That's going to be the focus of the next few weeks, um, pulling that together. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because I do see a lot. You know, there are so many podcasts that are well, well past a hundred, and and but I do feel like that the, the sort of the level of um, work that's required to put, especially when we do the live stuff. I mean, you know, often we do podcasts that that, that, that don't take an, that much organisation, but doing the the live stuff is does take a lot and then you know the, something like the voice and then some of the other episodes particularly the um film festival ones as well they take an awful lot of work to kind of put into the form that we we put them in so i, I do feel like we're we're giving ourselves permission to have a little bit of a celebration with this hundredth i think so yeah and i think it's you know it's coming at a time when like we sort of said at the, at the top of the program there's a lot of reflection and there's a lot of thinking i think it's a good time to to look back and 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 now wonder what the future of the podcast is is going to look like yeah I, th- I think so and, and some of the we, we've got some guest contributors who are coming on and doing little segments for us and i think one of the themes that's come out of what they've been um, recording for us has definitely been about what does the future hold so maybe it, i think i mean we've touched on it a little bit on this episode but i can definitely see more conversation in the hundredth about what what the film industry is going to look like what film teaching and academia is going to look like and then how are we going to deal with it on the podcast exciting times great so you can catch up with us of course on social media if you have any points that you want to make about the 100th episode um, please please feel free to do so we're obviously on twitter and on facebook and on the email at cinematologists at gmail.com if you really feel like that you enjoy the podcast and you have the means please think about um, contributing to our Patreon page. We'll have the latest newsletter going up and there's a lot of really good content on there. My my talk with uh, Leslie Byron Pitt is up there, which was taken just before the the whole apocalypse hit. And then, uh, Neil, I know you've got another another piece of um, bonus content to, to put up there. So, yeah, it would be great if you could uh, contribute and support the podcast. We would really appreciate that. Um, thanks very much, Neil. Thank you. Really a pleasure to talk to you. Great job on this episode. Thanks, man. And once again, thank you for the continued support of our listeners right up to this upcoming 100th episode. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. It's unbelievable.